0: You don't get the name Bad King John for nothing. Known for his cruelty, English monarch King John lost the original royal crown jewels in 1216. Some say they vanished. Others say they were intentionally misplaced. Many believe it to be karma. If you enjoy these episodes and want to hear more tales of history's greatest mysteries, subscribe to Unexplained Mysteries. New episodes premiere every Thursday. Listen free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, enjoy. (laughs) Tucked away in the Tower of London sit the crown jewels of England. Kept in the jewel room behind bulletproof glass and monitored by armed military guard, They have been used in every British coronation ceremony for hundreds of years.
1: There is a crown, a royal scepter and rod, a gem-laden orb, and a long fancy spoon. They haven't been used since Queen Elizabeth was crowned in 1953, and won't be used again until her son Charles takes the throne.
0: But ancient as they may seem, these are not the original crown jewels. Those lie 100 miles north of London in an area called The
1: Wash, a massive bog that floods during high tide. 800 years ago, a caravan of horse carts and carriages attempted to cross this muddy plain. But they did not account for the tides as they undertook the crossing. The water began to rise as they trudged through, growing stronger and more violent, finally capsizing their carts. Their cargo spilled out into the bog, disappearing beneath the murky water. The
0: caravan had belonged to King John, a king so paranoid and narcissistic
1: that he brought all of his earthly belongings everywhere he traveled. However, Bad King John, as he was called, was not with his baggage train when it was swept away by the tide. He had instructed his caravan to make the journey without him in an effort to save time.
0: Six days later, the king mysteriously died.
1: Why did a royal procession filled with the greatest treasure in the kingdom choose to make such a foolish trek? Why would a king so consumed with materialism allow himself to be separated from his most prized possessions? What really happened to King John and his treasure? In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this podcast, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every week, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth.
0: Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries. I'm your host, Richard.
1: And I'm your host, Molly.
0: You can listen to previous episodes of Unexplained Mysteries, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts a new episode comes out every Thursday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, on Twitter at Parcast Network, and at Parcast.com.
1: Some of you have been asking us how you can help support the show. Well, if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening.
0: This week, we're going to take a deep dive into the reign of King John, possibly the most hated king in English history. We'll examine his rise to power, his magnificent blunders both at home and abroad, and the final days of his life surrounding the tumultuous events at the Wash. It's said that the original crown jewels still lay in the Wash, buried beneath eight centuries of silt, protected by constantly shifting natural environment.
1: Next week, We'll take a look at the attempts that have been made to recover the treasure over the centuries and examine the local theories on the treasure's whereabouts. Legend has it, the crown jewels were never in the wash at all, but rather stolen in one of the greatest jewelry heists of all time. King John was not a good man, and no good friends had he. He stayed in every afternoon, but no one came to tea. And round about December, the cards upon his shelf, which wished him lots of Christmas cheer and fortune in the coming year, were never from his near and dear, and only from himself.
0: This nursery rhyme's depiction of a friendless, lonely King John was not much exaggerated. There is good reason why we don't refer to him as King John I. He put such a tarnish on the name that no other monarch ever took it.
1: Born on Christmas Eve in 1166, John was the youngest of King Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine's eight children. As the fifth-born son, his chances of becoming king were scant, and his father gave him the nickname Lackland to mock him for what little territory he was set to inherit. But
0: his family quarreled constantly. John's eldest brother, William, died young. So when John was a young boy, His two eldest living brothers, Henry and Richard, rebelled against his father in a bloody two-year war. Henry put down his son's uprising, and John, though just ten years old, became his favorite. Henry named John Lord of Ireland.
1: John's older brother Henry died in 1182 when John was 15. When John was 18, in 1185, King Henry sent him to Ireland to calm tensions between the native Irish chieftains and the Anglo-Norman barons who had been granted lands on the island. Needless to say, the young prince was not the man for the job.
0: Upon arriving on Irish soil, John was greeted by some of the local chieftains who wanted to pay homage to their liege. John mocked the Irish, who, to him, looked barbaric and pulled on their long beards in ridicule.
1: John's treatment of the chieftains led to more of them rising up against the Anglo-Norman lords placed there by John's father. Skirmishes broke out, previous alliances were broken, and John's military losses began to rack up. He had not only failed in his mission, he'd made matters worse.
0: This was the first of many unsuccessful military campaigns for John, or more accurately, for John's men. John rarely showed his face on the battlefield. He could usually be found drinking and carousing with women while his men were off fighting and dying for him.
1: After the disastrous Irish campaign, John was branded with a new nickname, Softsword. And indeed, John's favorite thing about battle was running away from it.
0: This nickname would have been embarrassing enough for any man in power, but John was the younger brother of Richard I, better known to history as Richard the Lionheart.
1: Richard the Lionheart earned his nickname because of his prowess on the battlefield. Not only would he fight on the front lines with his men, but Richard lived for war.
0: Richard the Lionheart was Henry II's eldest living son and set to inherit the throne. John was still the third in line, until 1186, when his brother Geoffrey unexpectedly died in Paris. Some legends say it was a heart attack. Other accounts cite a jousting accident.
1: Either way, the throne was suddenly in John's reach and only growing closer. In April
0: of 1189, John married his half-second cousin Isabella, Countess of Gloucester. A month later, Henry II died, and Richard was crowned king. John became first in the line of succession.
1: Richard's ten-year reign as King of England was mostly spent either at war with the French or fighting with the forces of Christian Europe and Palestine against the Muslim armies of Saladin. This engagement is now known as the Third Crusade. Richard's name became etched in European history as a warrior king who was ruthless in battle. He never shied away from a fight.
0: John, however, had no interest in fighting. Instead, while Richard was away in the Holy Lands, John tried to take his brother's throne.
1: He had reason for the attempted coup. Upon being crowned king, Richard had named their four-year-old nephew, Arthur of Brittany, as heir to the throne. Arthur was the son of Richard and John's older brother, Geoffrey, who had died before Arthur was born. While King Richard was off
0: fighting in the Crusades in the 1190s, Prince John sought an alliance with King Philip of France. John tried to steal Richard's lands in the northern part of France, the regions of Normandy and Anjou. Those are the ancestral homeland of the House of Plantagenet, the ancient royal family from which Richard and John descended.
1: This might be a good place to pause and give a little bit of geographical context. Today, when we use the terms England and France, or the English and the French, we know we're speaking about two distinct cultures and nations. In the Middle Ages, it wasn't so cut and dried. In the year
0: 1066, The Normans invaded and conquered England. The Normans hail from Normandy, a region in what's now France. That means that the royal bloodlines of England in the time of King John were from France. In fact, John wasn't actually called John. He would have been known as Jean.
1: It might seem absurd, but the King of England didn't speak English. He spoke French, just like every English king between the 11th and 14th centuries. The northern regions of what's now France were part of England and quite integral to the kingdom as they were the ancestral home of the royal family.
0: But so as not to confuse anyone, when we use the terms English and French on this episode, we'll be referring to the nations that would eventually become present-day England and France.
1: John wanted to take control of Richard's lands and promised his allegiance to Philip, King of France, in exchange for the territories. Richard learned of John's treachery and returned home, put down John's forces, and severed the alliance John had made with King Philip.
0: John surrendered to Richard and remained loyal to him from then on. However, his underhanded attempt to seize the throne antagonized the French. Angry about the severed alliance, King Philip attempted to take Richard's lands anyway. From the time Richard returned from the Crusades in 1194 until his death in 1199, he fought the French constantly. He died from a French crossbow during a siege on a French castle.
1: Richard died without an heir. On his deathbed, he proclaimed that John should succeed him as Arthur of Brittany was too young. Among his many victories, Richard had succeeded in keeping Normandy under English rule.
0: John, the unlikeliest of kings, ascended to the throne in May of 1199. His first move as king was to forfeit the lands in Normandy, those Richard had given his life to protect. He gave them to King Philip of France in exchange for Philip officially recognizing John as rightful heir to England.
1: His next move was to get rid of his wife of 15 years and marry a child. In the year 1200, after obtaining an annulment for his first marriage, King John married Isabella of Angoulême, who was, at the time, no more than 12 years old. John was 34.
0: To make matters worse, Isabella was already betrothed to Hugh IX Lebrun, Count of Lusignan in France. The count had purposely put off consummating the marriage because of her young age. King John had no such scruples.
1: Another reason John was so unpopular was that he was a sexual predator. It was widely known that you were not to leave your wife or daughter alone with a deviant prince, as he was inclined to have his way with them. He fathered at least five illegitimate children during his first marriage, two of them with wives of noblemen.
0: Even in the Middle Ages, this predation and forced marriage with a twelve-year-old was considered repugnant and it was not without consequence. Hugh the IX appealed to Philip, his king, to take action. King Philip of France summoned King John to his court to discuss the matter. When John failed to show, Hugh the IX, backed by King Philip, declared war in 1202. In an effort to make things personal, Hugh enlisted John's nephew and one-time heir to the throne, Arthur of Brittany, to aid him in the fight. If victorious, Arthur, now 15, would win Normandy and take the throne that he felt was rightfully his. King John now found himself forced to fight for lands he didn't care about, lands he had willfully surrendered to retain his crown.
1: There were still many who believed Arthur to be the rightful heir, and he found support in his campaign. He was knighted by King Philip of France as a show of good faith, but he would never take the throne. Darker forces would intervene.
0: Soon into the start of the war, Arthur disappeared. By all accounts, King John ordered the murder of his own flesh and blood. Some say he did the deed himself, after castrating and mutilating Arthur's body. Arthur was never seen again, but according to rumor, John tossed his body into a river attached to heavy stones.
1: Arthur's death was a defining moment in the reign of King John and was dramatized as such by William Shakespeare in The Life and Death of King John.
0: This single act should have been John's death knell. John's supporters in Normandy began switching their allegiance to the French.
1: Arthur's murder turned John's allies against him. English nobles had an honor code that forbid the cold-blooded murder of family members, even in times of war. John had crossed the line. With the barons defecting from John, the tide of the war turned and the French pushed John's army back to England. The loss of Normandy was complete. King John's
0: reign continued, but it would only get worse. We'll see how after this short message. Now back to the story.
1: Four years earlier, John inherited an empire that stretched across modern-day France and contained five times as much land as had the French king himself. By 1204, he had squandered it all, and his dominion was limited to the island of Britain. John's incompetence meant
0: his father's and brother's achievements were in vain. To add insult to injury, it was recorded that as Normandy fell, John was holed up in his castle, in bed with his child bride. He was deserving of a nickname far worse than soft sword.
1: Numerous kings and rulers have lost military battles. Many lost lands, alienated their nobles, fathered illegitimate children, and led deviant personal lives. But the reason history has shown King John in such a bad light is that he also made enemies of the men that write the history books. The Catholic Church When the Archbishop of Canterbury died, King John named a successor on his own without the Pope's blessing. Pope Innocent III rejected John's candidate and named Stephen Langton Archbishop. Naturally, as John usually did when he didn't get his way, he threw a tantrum. He banished Langton and forced out the monks who chose to obey the Pope. John was excommunicated from the church, And the Pope placed the whole of England under interdict.
0: Interdict meant that England was no longer part of Christendom. Churches closed their doors. There were no marriages, no baptisms, no funerals. Every child was a bastard. No sinner received absolution. This lasted for five years.
1: The people of England were terrified at the prospect of living in a godless land and blamed King John for their plight. Religion was extremely important in the everyday lives of the peasantry, and the king had, in their eyes, banished them to hell. The
0: interdict lasted five years from 1208 to 1213. During this time, John plundered the unguarded churches of England and confiscated the lands of the monks who had fled to Rome. He had one goal in mind, gain back his ancestral homelands in Normandy. King John had given those lands to King Philip of France in exchange for being recognized as the official king. But after the War of 1202, that recognition was revoked and he wanted his lands back as a point of pride. Besides, it wasn't like his own life was on the line during war. He would be safe and sound far away from battle.
1: Naturally, John needed to raise more taxes to finance his offensive against the French. These taxes came from his barons in England, which he used to hire mercenary soldiers to bolster his army. He purchased alliances with other European leaders and even reconciled with the Pope. In return, the Church encouraged powerful regions surrounding France to assist with John's invasion.
0: Once again, John's military campaign was a disaster, losing once and for all at the Battle of Bouvines in 1214. King Philip of France routed John's coalition army and solidified the French claim on Normandy. An English flag would never again fly over the European mainland. John, of course, was nowhere near the battle that defined his reign. He was safely 400 miles away, letting his allies bear the brunt of the loss.
1: As John made his way back to England in late 1214, the earls and barons of the country assembled for a meeting. Their taxes had financed the failed attempt to retake Normandy, and they were fed up with their incompetent king. A charter was drawn up with the help of Archbishop Stephen Langton, the man whose exile led to the five-year interdict.
0: The document outlined the barons' grievances, but most importantly, placed limits on the power of the king. The barons agreed to present it to the king, and if he refused to sign it, They would enter into open rebellion.
1: Throughout the first half of 1215, John and the barons negotiated terms of the charter. John did not want to make any concessions, but the barons were threatening war, and John was ill-prepared to fight them. The two sides met out in the open at Runnymede on June 15, 1215, to sign what they called the Articles of the Barons. This would eventually be called the Great Charter, or, as it's more commonly known by its Latin translation, Magna Carta.
0: One of the tenets put forth was that no free man shall be arrested or imprisoned without the lawful judgment of his peers. This was a forerunner to the modern-day notion of the right to trial by jury. In fact, It would become one of the most lasting principles of Magna Carta, still preserved today in the United States Bill of Rights.
1: While this may have seemed like a noble endeavor, John considered it tantamount to treason. He put his seal on the charter to avoid a war and stay on the throne, but he had no intention of keeping the terms of the deal.
0: Magna Carta as we know it today was brought back after King John's death, updated, sealed by the Pope and implemented into the fabric of English society. So while we think of King John as the Magna Carta King, in reality, the document's importance in posterity had almost nothing to do with John himself. Immediately after signing, John began to move about the country and torment anyone who supported the rebellious barons. He appealed to the Pope for support who excommunicated the barons and sent mercenaries to back John in retaking the country. The barons were ready. They hadn't expected John to keep his word. In November of 1215, they declared war on their king.
1: The war with the barons started out well for King John. He crisscrossed the country, laying siege to several castles and taking back land in the north of England that had been lost. But the tide turned when the barons invited the French Prince Louis to assist with their rebellion. In return, they promised to crown him king. Louis landed on English soil in May of 1216. He rode into London and took the city without a fight. At this point, even some of John's most loyal supporters began to abandon him.
0: His men fleeing, his city falling, John was on the run from the French and his barons, roaming from town to town with his enormous entourage and mercenary army, terrorizing the locals with taxation and fear of death. He was even known to arise each morning and burn down the house he slept in before moving on to the next village, just because he could.
1: This period in English history gave rise to the legend of Robin Hood, which is hardly surprising. The common people bore the full brunt of this war between the barons and King John. It was fought on their land, with their tax dollars, and it was their villages being ransacked and burned.
0: When King John traveled, he took his entire castle with him. His office, his bedroom, all of his knights and soldiers, his huntsmen and concubines, miners and ditch diggers, bakers and cooks, dogs, horses and oxen, plenty of food and wine. The procession was well over a mile long, and the crown jewels were the literal apex of his collection.
1: They included crowns, ceremonial swords, silver plates, golden goblets, relics of saints, and expensive tapestries. There was a golden plate that belonged to John's father, King Henry, and the crown and golden wand of his grandmother, the Empress Matilda of Germany. Some accounts even say that John possessed the sword of Tristram, the legendary warrior that was one of King Arthur's Knights of the Round Table. And of course, as in every portrayal of the indulgent medieval king, there was a large chest full of gold coins. On the 11th of October, 1216, John and his traveling contingent were in the town of Bishop's Lynn to the east of the Wash, This was supposedly friendly territory, as John himself had given the town its charter in 1204, allowing the town to govern itself. But John's advisor soon got word that the king should travel back west to Lincoln, where he had just come from, as it was assumed to be safer territory from the armies of the rebellious barons.
0: That morning, John's retinue took off for Spalding, about 30 miles to the west on the road to Lincoln. Despite its enormous size, the cavalcade moved at a brisk pace, usually covering 30 to 40 miles in a day. Spaulding should have been a normal one-day trek. However, the train only made it to Walpole, about 12 miles from Spaulding. It stopped for the night at the edge of the wash.
1: This would have been strange enough, but there was also someone missing from King John's royal party. King John. Instead of traveling with his men and possessions, he went around the wash by taking the road southwest to spend the night in the town of Wisbeach.
0: The next morning, the train of wagons and carts set off across a causeway through the wash, but there was something they hadn't counted on, the tide.
1: As it came through, water began to puddle around their ankles. Then, the water began to rise rapidly, violently, making it hard to walk. The ground was mushy, turning into quicksand.
0: The cavalcade realized that the water would soon sweep them away. They had to run. There was no saving the king's caravan. It was every man for themselves.
1: They fled, abandoning the carts and wagons of treasure, but they wouldn't get out alive.
0: Before long, the entire causeway was underwater. The treasure, over 2,000 people, and hundreds of animals fell victim to the quicksand.
1: Before we get into the aftermath of the loss, let's take a quick look at some of the theories as to how this catastrophe happened.
0: First, plain ignorance. King John's men had no idea that the wash would be so treacherous, They needed to move the caravan quickly and simply took a shortcut.
1: That was one possibility, considering the fact that there's no record of the group having a local guide to help them navigate this unfamiliar terrain. Besides, the train had made the exact same crossing three days prior in order to get to Bishop's Lynn, albeit going in the opposite direction, from west to east.
0: If the causeway had been a successful path for them in the past, They could have sincerely been caught off guard by the rising tide.
1: And the tide could have been a freak occurrence. The area around the wash has what's known as stolen tides, freak currents of water that show up several hours earlier than usual, and with a vengeance.
0: But even still, this was obviously a dangerous path to be taking with the king's valuables. Even if they didn't know just how dangerous, they were aware that risks were involved. They could have taken the longer, safer path that King John himself took.
1: That's the most unusual aspect of this voyage. King John was not with his men. He crossed the wash by horse via Wisbeach, further inland and much less treacherous.
0: We don't know what, but something went wrong in Bishop's Lynn. Something that made King John separate himself from all the luxuries a king is afforded and take a different path back to Lincoln on horseback.
1: Remember... The king was at war with his barons. Some parts of England remained loyal to the king, others were in open rebellion.
0: Perhaps Bishop's Lynn wasn't the safe haven John believed it to be and needed to hightail it out of there to avoid a local uprising.
1: Or an invasion. London had already fallen to the barons, and the barons had enlisted the help of the French, who had already landed on English soil. Bishop's Lynn would have been an ideal staging point, as John would have been cornered with his back to the North Sea.
0: Another possibility could be mutiny. King John's men could have been losing their patience with their king and his fruitless war. This theory is supported by the fact that nothing has ever been recovered from the wash. Some believe John's men knew of the mutiny and grabbed treasure before the caravan headed out.
1: But along those lines, we should also suspect the king himself. Some say that the treasure never went with the baggage train, that John left the most valuable items of his collection in Bishop's Lynn to pay back a loan. He then arranged for their disappearance so that his men would never know that he sold the crown jewels to pay a debt. And based on what we know of King John, he would have few qualms about killing 2,000 of his own people to spare his reputation.
0: Local unrest, foreign and domestic invaders, traitorous soldiers, or attempted insurance fraud, all of these theories have a common theme. King John was not well-liked and could not be trusted. Almost every person in the country, including John himself, had motive to strip the king of his fortune. And within a week's time the bad king
1: would be dead. It's quite possibly the most intriguing in medieval whodunit, but who had the opportunity and the most to gain from the fall of King John?
0: We'll dive into the mystery in just a moment. Now, back to the story.
1: On October the 12th, 1216, while the English crown jewels and his other valuables were being swallowed up by the quicksand of the wash, King John was on the move. He traveled from Wisbeach to Swineshead, a town about 30 miles further down the road. Along the way, he developed a fever.
0: At Swineshead, John and his smaller entourage arrived at the abbey, where he was taken in by the monks intended to. In addition to his fever, John began to show signs of dysentery. Those are the largely agreed upon facts of the story. But, much like John and his jewels, legends begin to divert down
1: separate paths. According to one account, while recovering at Swineshead Abbey, John got the news that his treasure had been lost in the wash. That night, with a fever getting worse by the hour, John overstuffed himself with peaches and cider, which only worsened his condition. According
0: to this legend, John's appetite is what did him in. But a darker legend
1: tells a much
0: different tale. That night in Swineshead Abbey, John may have been murdered.
1: Though King John had returned to the favor of the church, the monks may not have been so forgiving of their king. After all, he had damned his entire country for five years. He sent thousands of unbaptized children to the fiery gates of hell.
0: The story goes that the monks took him in and gave him ale. But before presenting the king with his cup, they pricked a poisonous toad and dripped the venom into the beer. And it was the venom, not King John's gluttony, that aggravated his sickness.
1: Whatever the case, John didn't stay with the monks at Swine's Head long. Two days later, he traveled to Sleaford. With his condition deteriorating, he wrote a letter to the Pope, which outlined his hope for the Church to honor his hereditary bloodline when England needed a new king.
0: Obviously, he knew the end was near and was taking the necessary steps to ensure his young son Henry would be the next king. The following day, he made his final journey to the castle at Newark. He was in such bad health that he couldn't ride a horse. He had to be carried by his men.
1: On the night of the 18th of October, 1216, King John of England died. But earlier that day, many letters had left Newark Castle, stamped with the King's seal. Whether these letters were from John himself or written for him by his men, we have no way of knowing.
0: What we do know is the content of these letters. These were not the ramblings of a bedridden invalid slowly losing his mind. They were specific, coherent instructions to his allies regarding the movement of troops and other official business of a royal at war.
1: It's easy to understand how King John's men would want these letters to be as articulate as possible. With his death impending and fears of a French takeover backed by the rebellious barons, their only chance was to beat back the insurrection and make sure John's nine-year-old son was crowned king.
0: But the real question was, were these letters spurred by John's worsening condition, or were they the cause of his death?
1: And was the loss of his treasure a mere coincidence, or did the king's men plan for John's belongings to follow him to the grave? Or more disturbing, did the king's caravan ever cross the wash at all?
0: Which turns our focus to a different kind of document, the king's will. King John's authentic last will and testament has survived the past 800 years of war, siege, and plague, and currently sits in Worcester Cathedral, where King John was buried. For a man with so many possessions, the will is surprisingly short— It could fit on a modern-day postcard in its entirety.
1: It includes a vague effort to see some of his wealth used to help the poor, which would in turn help John's soul in the afterlife. But it mostly states that the men who stayed with him to the end are in charge of his legacy. He lists the men at his bedside and states that those who disobey his men will, quote, incur the curse and indignation of Almighty God, end quote.
0: There is no wording in the document which specifically states how his fortune should be doled out, and absolutely no mention of his lost treasure.
1: In fact, from the 12th of October, the day the treasure was lost, until the king's death six days later, there is not one letter sent by the king which suggested that the incident in the wash took place. There was no request to replace supplies, men, or animals. There was nothing that hinted at the fact that one of the richest kings in history was essentially broke. Going off the king's letters in his final days, it was as if the baggage train had never been lost at all. The
0: only real evidence we have that the crown jewels were lost is their absence. When John died and his son Henry was crowned king, there were no kingly robes to place on his 9 year old shoulders. A gold necklace had to be refitted into a makeshift crown. Eventually, new crown jewels were created and used in future coronations, but the originals were never seen again.
1: The lack of crown jewels notwithstanding, John's son was crowned king, becoming Henry III. He was looked after by one of his father's closest confidants, William Marshall, who was said to be medieval England's greatest knight.
0: Marshall had stuck by King John's side, one of the few barons who did so. He was with the king in his final days and
1: saw to it that his last wishes were kept. William Marshall's story will be familiar to anyone who's seen a knight's tale. He was born around 1146 A.D., the fourth youngest son of a minor noble. He began training as a knight when he was twelve, with no hope of ever owning lands or titles of his own.
0: William made a name for himself on the jousting circuit and performed well in battle skirmishes designed to prepare knights for war. By 1170, the young knight was asked to join the household of Henry, son of King Henry II. This would begin a lifelong partnership with the royal family that would end entrenched in conspiracy.
1: Fighting for the royal family was an unprecedented opportunity for a man of William's station, and he didn't squander it. Prince Henry and William grew so close that, when Prince Henry died in 1183, William took his sword to fight in the Crusades in Jerusalem.
0: In 1185, after returning to England, William pledged his loyalty to King Henry II when Richard the Lionheart rebelled against him.
1: William and Henry II squelched Richard's rebellion. As we've already covered, Richard the Lionheart still succeeded to the throne shortly thereafter, which could have been the end of William Marshall's career. After all, why keep a knight around after he's fought you in battle?
0: But King Richard did not see William as an enemy. Rather, he recognized a man of strong moral fiber who understood the meaning of the word allegiance. He saw William as someone who would live and die by his word, and in a kingdom as treacherous as feudal England, a king needed that kind of loyalty by his side.
1: After King Richard's death, William Marshall served King John loyally until the day John died, but loyalty was not blind. William loved John, but knew that he was an inept ruler. Bad King John's death granted him one small window of time to undo much of the harm that John had caused during his reign.
0: After John's death, William reinstated the Magna Carta to appease the rebellious barons and led the fight to push out the French. They won the war easily once diplomacy and military strategy took a front seat to John's tyrannical tantrums. Marshall went on to act as a faithful regent for young Henry III, until he came of age.
1: For all intents and purposes, King John's death saved England. For had he lived, the French alliance with the barons would have held, John's forces would have succumbed, and England would have likely been absorbed into the French kingdom.
0: After his death, King John's body was slowly carted 100 miles south to Worcester Cathedral, where he was interred his tomb was exquisitely forged and given a distinguished place at the foot of the altar. This may seem ironic for a king who had been excommunicated for a time, but in his last years, John had returned to the favor of the church. His tomb hasn't been moved in
1: 800 years. The design of King John's tomb is ominous, to say the least. It's a lifelike effigy of the monarch near the time of his death, Beneath John's feet is a small lion, as if John is standing on top of it. The lion's mouth is swallowing the end of John's sword. This is said to represent John's endless wars at home and abroad, as the lion was a symbol for the world. His sword is unsheathed at his side and broken in some parts.
0: One can come to the conclusion that his tomb is representative of his situation at the time of his demise at odds with the world. There is irony in the depiction of John's sword on sheath, as John had never actually wielded his sword in battle while he was alive. Though John's life was fraught with self-serving arrogance, perhaps the first sacrifice he made for the good of his country was his death.
1: Or at least that's what the architects of his legacy wished to imply, and were possibly rewarded handsomely for their efforts because the death of King John may not have been good fortune. Many suspect a coup.
0: Consider the events of the last week of King John's life. A king separated from a treasure that he never let out of his sight, that treasure mysteriously vanishing, the king falling desperately ill while in the care of a religious order.
1: Letters sent by the king to the pope professing loyalty a vague will stating that the king's closest allies will speak for him when he's gone. And after his death, the king's body interred in an ornate coffin for all to see at the altar of a grand cathedral. It seems all too convenient that he should have met death at Swineshead Abbey through no fault of the men around him. But those who surrounded King John in his final days were his most loyal, trusted advisors After all this time, had they finally come to see the turning, or in this case, rising, of the tide?
0: Who benefited from the death of King John? Could the lost treasure have been a down payment for the purchase of a new country, one without a tyrannical despot at its helm? One where the Magna Carta is honored and the people, albeit the wealthy land-owning people, have the same rights as a king?
1: Next week, we'll examine this theory and see if we can find clues that the lost crown jewels were never lost at all. We'll also go on a treasure hunt. We'll look into items found in the wash over the years, items people claim were part of the treasure.
0: Finally, we'll explore the wash as it exists today and how the geography of the landscape has changed. We'll check out the more recent findings and see how modern technology has gotten us closer than ever to finding a kingdom's greatest treasure missing for 800 years. If you're looking for more Unexplained Mysteries, you can find us, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox... Tune in or your favorite podcast directory.
1: You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Many listeners ask how to help the show. If you enjoy the show, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review. See you next Thursday.
0: And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Paul Liebeskind, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unexplained Mysteries is written by Justin Naughton and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner.